0: Well, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and yet you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because of this, He says, I advise you to buy from Me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments... So that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I shall to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Lord, as we read these words, I am again struck by by the notion. Lord, by the understanding that you didn't just speak flowery words. You just didn't throw out interesting concepts. You didn't just tie into whatever city you were writing to to be poetic. Lord, I read these words and I hear your intentional, ignited spirit for your people. I hear promises here that are actual and real, Lord. Lord. And I think we have some idea, perhaps, of what you're trying to get across. I pray that we will, by the time we're done this morning. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you will give us spiritual insight. That you will open our eyes. And let us see, even as we seek to hear with open ear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. We're here to receive this morning, Lord. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. There are approximately 782,815 words in the Bible. That's 31,173 verses. 1,189 chapters. 39 books in the Hebrew Scriptures. 27 in the New Testament. And you could say a partridge in a pear tree. Sixty-six books in the Bible, and one Revelation—the Revelation of Jesus Christ—and I again bring to you the one-two-three punch of biblical revelation. John five thirty-nine. Jesus says, "It is these that testify about me." Hebrews ten verse seven, quoting Psalm forty verse seven. In the scroll of the book, Jesus says, "It is written of me." And Revelation 19, verse 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His testimony. It's all written of Him. Now, since we're running the numbers, and many of our children are counting the days, after all, tis the season, I wanted to share something with you I ran across this week. I found it interesting. Perhaps you will too. Every year since 1984... Economists at PNC Wealth Management have figured out how much it would cost to buy up the list of the 12 days of Christmas.
1: <laughs>
0: item by item. And in 2018, here's the deal. 12 drummers drumming will cost you $3,038.10. Not including earplugs. 11 pipers piping. That'll run you $2,808.40. 10 lords a-leapin'. Ten thousand dollars. Yeah, thousand bucks a lord. Now that's up three percent from last year, so you might want to jump on that. Nine ladies dancing is seven thousand five hundred and fifty-two dollars and eighty-four cents. So we see there's still an equality income gap. There. Eight maids a milking, fifty-eight (laughs) bucks. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's one hour of milking at the federal minimum wage. There you go, eight maids of milking. Seven swans of swimming outdo all of the above, $13,125. Now that's got to include handlers for the swans I guess maybe the pool for the swimming six geese a land 390 bucks now that's up 8.3% from last year five gold rings this is a good deal 750 bucks down 9.1% from 2017 Four calling birds, $599.96. Three French hens, $181.50. Two turtle doves, $375. And finally, one partridge in a pear tree, $220.13. That's a 0.1% from last year. Just want to track these things literally, clearly. Now, if you bought every gift on the list... It would cost you $39,093.94. But, if you really want to impress your true love, you could buy all the items as repeated throughout the song, which is over 364 times, for a whopping $170,609.46. Better get on it, you only have 16 shopping days till Christmas. It's <laughs> a lot of money for a lot of items. Now, I do have an intention for telling you all this. It's a little strange, I know, but it is not as strange as the comment that we read from Jesus that we hear Him say. In fact, I would place this statement among all of the strangest, most bizarre statements that Jesus ever made when He says, verse 18, I advise you to buy from Me. Excuse me? Oh, let me say it again, Jesus might say this morning, I advise you to buy from Me. Why would you say that, Lord? What, is, what do you mean to buy from You? I ran across that comment and I thought, Lord, in 15 years of teaching through Your Word and understanding Your pure and perfect and wonderful grace, why would you say buy I advise you to buy from me, he says. Well, we need a little context to understand the comment. We're in the seventh letter of the seven letters to the church, right? At the end of the age. We have covered here 2,000 years in 10 weeks of the church age, reading through these letters to these specific, you know, historical churches, but also prophetically as we overlay and we see the connection between the letters and specific ages of the church. And here we are, arriving at the very end of the church age, both in Revelation chapter 3, and also I am absolutely convinced in world history. The end of the age, the last days. And Jesus is talking to Laodicea. Laodicea. Now we looked at this Wednesday night in depth. I wish we could have gone further into depth. There is so much to understand and see there. And if you weren't here Wednesday, I, I advise you to go back and listen because things have changed, even since the last time we taught through this, even since the last time we looked at Revelation chapter 3, since we read Laodicea, back then we were in the postmodern world. Well guess what? We no longer are in the postmodern world. We are now in the post-postmodern world. The last day's world of what is being called by sociologists meta-modernism, or what artists like to call the new sincerity. Metamodernism. And we talked about what that meant. Now I'm not going to get back into it this morning, but for a quick review, just for understanding, as we read the Scriptures today, look back at historical Laodicea and understand what he's saying, not just to the church in history, but to the church right now, and I would say in America especially today. Listen to the connection. Historical Laodicea was an affluent town. One of the more affluent towns in the entire region of Asia Minor, as in the same way we live in the most affluent country in history. In historical Laodicea, you might say it was the Wall Street of Asia Minor. It had the largest banking system there. It was the New York City of commerce and trade. It was the fifth avenue of fashion. We talked a little bit about that, how how they were into and had this black wool, specifically a black wool fashion, that they got off the black sheep that roamed the hills around Laodicea. And it was all the rage, kind of that emo look of the, uh, the first century. And the Laodiceans also within this developed and exported a famous eye salve called Phrygian powder. And healing ointments for the ears, they had a medical school right there in Laodicea. So they were top of the world in medicine, they were affluent, they were a fashion industry. Laodicea also was the end point of an aqueduct system. That is, there were pipes running down from Hierapolis and over from Colossae. Hieropolis had natural hot springs, and so they would pipe that hot water down to Laodicea. Colossae had natural icy cold springs, and they would pump that water up through to Laodicea. The problem is, both of them, by the time they arrived at Laodicea, were lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And we see this in the comments of Jesus. He draws off off all of these characteristics. And as I prayed, and I hope you heard this, it wasn't just to be flowery or poetic. Jesus is being intentional. He has very specific things to say to us if we have ears to hear. And he opens up truth to us, and what he's doing as he draws off all these characteristics of one time historical Laodicea is he's addressing the church of the tepid indifference. The church, we're here, we got our buildings, we got our little social system, we're good. The church that thinks it's got all it needs the church that truly is indifferent to whether or not Jesus shows up on a Sunday morning because we're going to do what we're going to do either way. The church of tepid indifference. And he says to this church, I know your deeds. That you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that word spit I mentioned midweek is literally vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's a very descriptive word when you hear it spoken in Greek. It's emeo. Emeo. You'll remember it that way. Next time you get the flu, emeo. I'm speaking Greek. Emeo. Jesus says, I will emett oh, you out of my mouth. He just can't stomach a passionless love. Jesus is not all in to a relationship expecting us to be half in. He wants a passion. Listen, could you stomach an emotionless, passionless love? Would you? Would any of us enjoy being around someone who could care less if we were here? If you are invited to a party, can you imagine someone up coming up to you and saying, Hey, we're having a party, Christmas party, Friday night. If you want to come, whatever. You know, I mean, whether or not you come, I don't really care. But we're doing this thing, so, you know, feel free. How many of us would be like, oh, that sounds great. I feel wanted. I feel loved. Can't wait to get there and see what it's like when I arrive. And you arrive and no one talks to you no one really cares. No one looks at you because, <laughs> Whatever. You know, Jesus is talking to a church here. I think the most stunning recognition of many of these letters is he is talking to Christians, to believers. And he brings this word. And, and I have to ask, how did they get there? You ever ask yourself the same question? How did I get so lackadaisical about my faith? Paul said just as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. Do you remember when you received Him? Was there some spark, some illumination, some excitement, some passion there? When you said, yes, Lord, I believe. I actually believe. I mean, if there wasn't, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah I believe. Maybe I'll come next week. What happens between the person who falls madly in love, head over heels with Jesus, and then lands in a place where they're like, whatever, Just lukewarm indifference? How did the American church get there? I mean, you know, this country was founded on people coming across because they wanted the freedom to one thing, worship. They came to this country to worship God, to have the opportunity to go before God with faith and not have the government tell them how to do it. How did we get here? How does any church go from its bright beginnings to its dull methodologies? How does a person... How do you claim allegiance to Jesus only to end up with indifference toward Jesus? I think I would call that the apathy of affluence. The apathy of affluence. I mean, think about it, really. What do you get the person who's got everything? How do you you excite someone with a gift when they already have every possible thing that they could ever want? And you give it to them and they just kind of... You know, whatever. Jesus is addressing this. He says in verse 17, "...because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from Me." Buy from me. This is the person who, who thinks they've got it all. Jesus says, you have no idea. You don't even realize that you're wretched. 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 Paul uses that exact same word in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, when he says, wretched man that I am. We need to start there. You realize that spiritual poverty will stay with you until you recognize, until you understand that you are wretched outside of Christ. For all wealth you may have amassed. For all things you may have accomplished. For anything going on in your life that you think, wow, I've done this, I've achieved this, I'm doing alright with this. Until we recognize our wretchedness, we cannot get away from our poverty. Wretched. Of course, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That's John looking at the scroll and weeping. Who will set us free? Who can open this up? Who can bring release from the prison of my wretchedness? Now, if you stay in that place, that's also a bad thing. Paul goes on and says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the whole point. I recognize my wretchedness and I see His glory. And when I see His glory, I realize there is hope to pull me out of this. Hope to actually be saved. But if you don't know you're wretched, what do you need to be saved for? Jesus says they don't even realize it. They don't get why they're so miserable. As I said Wednesday night, lukewarm Christianity is the most miserable place to live. Because you got too much of the world to be content with Jesus, and you got too much Jesus to be content with the world. One foot in, one foot out, trying to mix a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of just normal daily life, and as you mix two things, a hot and a cold, you get lukewarm. Jesus wants you all. He wants it all. He calls for His people to be all in or not in. And we think we can straddle the two and find that we are actually miserable. By the way, the word miserable here in the text, when Jesus says, you don't know that you're miserable, that word also translates pitiable. Pitiable. You don't even know. You don't even see it. And they have no idea that they are so poor. Poor. Ptoxos is the word in the Greek, and it means beggarly, it means destitute, and we talked about this word actually recently because it's the same word that Jesus used to describe the very opposite position of the church in Smyrna. Remember Smyrna? Suffering Smyrna? Impoverished Smyrna? Jesus says in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, <laughs> but you are rich! You are rich! This is the church that's got Nothing! totally broke, no income whatsoever, and they're under severe suffering and persecution, and Jesus says, Ah, Smyrna, wealth of Asia. You are a rich people. You see, in God's economy, prosperity has to do with how I am toward God rather than how I am toward myself. Wealth in God's economy is measured in terms of kingdom and eternal investment rather than worldly and temporary speculation. It's a different mentality when you come to God when He talks about money. And just in case you were wondering if God ever pays attention to your giving, Mark chapter 12. If you've got your Bible, turn back to Mark chapter 12. I was afraid he was going to start talking about giving when I saw that wealthy st- statement there. I forget who the pastor was, but I, I've got this great quote. I, I saw it this week. I don't even remember the whole quote. But it, it was a, an old-time pastor who just relished talking about money and making people squirm. I thought it was good. Mark chapter 12, verse 31, and, and with all seriousness, All kidding aside, we see Jesus says He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Does God pay attention to your giving? Yes, He does. Does He know what your giving looks like? I don't. Good news. I have no one intentionally to preach to this morning about this. I don't have any idea what anybody gives. We have said over the years here that that is between you and God. That is not my business. It is not your church elders' business to know. <laughs> the only ones who know anything about it are the ones who put the numbers together for end-of-the-year tax purposes. Now the rest of us know. We don't want to know. But God does. You need to grapple with that reality. Whatever your giving pattern is, God knows exactly. And the picture here in Mark is He not only knows, He's watching he gets a, a seat right there toward the back and he just sits and watches people giving. Is aware of people's offerings to him. It says many rich people were putting in large sums. Well, bless them. Can you imagine? Jesus sitting there watching and here they come. He just watches the wealthy and, and the reason he knows they're wealthy is they're making a big show of it. Big obvious thing. That's why we stuck boxes at the back of the building, so no one could do that. You know, When I was a kid, what we did was when the plate came along, because we always passed a plate in my church, we put our hand in and we flicked the bottom so it would sound like you know) clink. <laughs> Oh, don't worry, I paid for that. Anyway. So a poor widow came verse 42, and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. That's yeah, kind of pathetic. Calling his disciples to him to him, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, I mean, she's still there. Jesus is talking about real events, a real situation. This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Why? They all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, note this, get this, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And by the way, had one of those wealthy folks come in and dumped everything that they had into the treasury, it would have been just as impressive to Jesus. The amount made no difference. It was the sacrifice. It was the offering that made a difference. It was the heart. Do you think this widow was apathetic toward God? Or perhaps passionate to give everything she had? Why would she do that? I mean, she could have at least bought a shawarma with that or, you know, at least a piece of bread or something. But it was her last two cents. Why would she do it? Well, because she knew her next meal came from God. She knew her housing was covered by Jesus, by the Lord. She understood something that so often we don't understand about God's economy. And that is, He loves sacrificial giving. He loves giving that is done in trust, that forces trust. Beware the apathy of affluence. It makes you lazy. If you want to heat up a lukewarm faith, and Jesus is going to talk about three items we can actually buy to heat up a lukewarm faith. But before we even get there, if you want to fire up your faith, give in a way that compels you to trust Him. I was talking years ago to a a very, very wealthy man. I felt kind of like the... Like the scene in It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey comes into Potter's office, you know, and he sits down and the chair's like way down here and he's looking up at Mr. Potter. And and I felt like I'm sitting there in this chair in this big office, this grandiose situation, and we're talking about money. And uh, he said, what's your attitude toward giving at your church? I love when people say, your church. Not my church. His church. I just attend, But... What's your attitude toward giving? And I said, Well, you know, I, I, I think personally, not as a legalistic expectation, but I think beginning at ten percent is great. The whole idea of the tithe, which means ten percent, that's what he asked of Israel, and the blessings that would flow, and that's the one time, you know, he said, Test me in this. So I'm sharing this with this gentleman. I said, So I I, I think tithing is, is great. And he goes, Oh, no, 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 no. I make way too much to tithe to your church. And I thought no, you don't. <laughs> what do you mean? We'll take it. You know, He didn't understand the, the concept. It, it wasn't about the amount. In fact, when he said, I make way too much to tie it to your church, I said, well, that's fine. Don't tie it to my church. First of all, it's not in my church. But don't, that's fine, give it somewhere else. But, but there's a trust factor, and I say, and when we start there, and then we continue any other giving, charitable giving beyond that, man, that will fire up your faith. Jesus said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Do you realize the reason we have money on this earth as far as God is concerned is to develop faith? That's why. Your income? No, it's about my survival. God provides that. He said, Consider the lilies of the field. They neither sow, nor do they spin, nor do they reap. See how much your heavenly fathers clothed them? Solomon himself, in all his glory, didn't look like these. God will take care of that. Well, yeah, but I, I make money just for my, you know, and my investments for my assurance. Really? My kids, when we set up allowance at home, we set up a little system where they have three jars. Uh, One says tithe, one says save, one says spend. I have told them this, and I will tell you this, there is one reason we give them allowance, and it is not for doing their chores. Because they're going to do their chores whether we give them allowance or not. (laughs) You live in this house, you do your chores. The reason that that I started, that Cheryl and I established an allowance for our children was to teach them how to tithe, and to save, and to spend Why do you think God gives you an allowance? He wants to increase faith. He wants to increase faith on the end of tithing, that we trust Him with whatever we give. When it comes to saving, that we trust Him, that He will meet our needs as they come. And when it comes to spending, that we will learn how to spend so-called unrighteous wealth on the kingdom, on things that matter. And so he gives us a liberal allowance. So much for all the banks of Laodicea. By the way, bank. You know that bank is a boy's name in Great Britain? It comes from Bancroft. So the guy is walking around called bank. Wanna know what it means? I love this. The word, the name bank means field of beans. It does. Laodicean wealth doesn't amount to a hill of beans in God's economy. Well, Jesus says, they can't, they they think they've got it all. And they don't know they're wretched and miserable and poor. And He says, and blind. You can't even see for all your blindness. I mean, so much for your Phrygian powder. So much for your medical advances in eye ointments. Paul said 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Why does a non-believer have such trouble coming to Christ? Because Satan, the God of this world, is trying to keep a veil over their eyes so they can't see. By the way, best thing you can pray for a non-believing friend or family member is that the veil will be removed just long enough that they can catch a glimpse of Jesus. I'll tell you what's disturbing to me about that verse. It's not that the perishing, that unbelievers are blinded. I understand that. They don't see clearly. I get that. It's when I think about the believer who is unbelieving. And the veil starts to slide right back down over their eyes. The believer who gets Lazy in faith, and the gospel then becomes veiled, and they think they have insight but are actually blind. Remember, Jesus is talking to the church, and he says, You're blind and you don't know it. The veil is returned by your unbelief, you're unaware of it, and they have no idea that they are buck naked. I put the buck in there. But that's what he says you are naked. This is the Emperor's new clothes all over. Walking around in our finery, thinking we're all that, and not realizing we got nothing on. So much for the Laodicean emo hipster black wool fashion sense. You know, this was a fashion center. And these black clothes that they would construct and make there were were all the rage. And Jesus draws off that and says, Church, you're naked and you don't know it. Laodicean church, you've got nothing on. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from His sight. And we talked about Jesus sitting there watching people give. Even in such a, a, a thing like that, He's aware. He knows. he knows exactly what's going on. Nothing we do, we think we can hide teenagers from your parents. We think we can hide from our spouses. We think we can hide from our friends. We think we can dress it up, put on a Mr. Rogers sweater, and no one will really know <laughs> what's going on. I thought I'd say it before anyone else did. We think we can hide, and the Bible says no. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all things are open, He says, and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You're going to have to face Him at one point. You're going to have to deal with God one way or another. And all things are laid bare and open The word open there. Laid bare is a hunter's word. It, it means display open like you would in, in uh, uh, opening up a deer. But the word open is literally the same word Jesus uses here. Gumnus, it's naked. All things are naked before God. This is the church of the wrong assumption. This is the church that thinks one thing, but the truth is they have no prescription for their wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked state. Standing there before Jesus completely unaware, but listen, the great physician has a prescription. A marvelous, wonderful prescription. And you know, I'm including this whole last section, the last half of this letter in the P.S. to Laodicea. I guess there's a connection to the previous PS's and the previous letters, which I'll share with you in just a moment. But this is, beginning in verse 8, or 18, a buyer's guide for the lukewarm. Because note, he says, because you say, I'm rich and to become wealthy, I have need of nothing, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because of this, because of this, I advise you to buy from me. Because you have no idea where you are. I advise you to buy from me. Chuck Smith once said, God doesn't measure your gifts by the amount, but by what it costs you. That's where faith starts to get exciting, by the way, when when there's cost involved. And so Jesus says, buy from me. And I encourage you, as we look at these things that He offers to sell, as you ask yourself a question, do I buy this? Do I buy any of this? Three prescriptions. Sure to heat up your faith. Sure to take lukewarm and ignite it. Turn it on fire. First one. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. In the Bible, gold, especially in the context of fire, depicts faith. Note that. He's talking about faith. Gold is faith. Fired faith faith that is ignited heated up gold depicts faith where do you get that 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 6 and this you greatly rejoice even though for a little while now you if necessary you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at note this at the revelation of Jesus Christ That your faith may be gold. A golden, glorious faith. Do you want a faith that's as good as gold when Jesus shows up? When He calls you home, it's got to be fired. The only faith that is purified is the faith that goes through the furnace. Some of you are in the furnace right now. Some of you are in painful situations. I know that. Some of you are facing serious hardships. Some of you, maybe all of us, we have aspects of our lives that are good, but we have other things that we don't even want to think about because of how much they hurt when we do. Take your faith into that fire. I advise you to buy gold refined by fire. From me, Jesus says. Put your faith in the furnace and turn up the heat. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Kind of a go-to picture going into the furnace because they did, literally, there in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar constructs that huge statue, the gold head, remember that? And I'm, I'm personally convinced that head looked exactly like Nebuchadnezzar. And he called upon all the people when the band started to play, fall down and worship my statue. And the people fell down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stayed standing. And they were thrown into that furnace. They heated that furnace up, by the way, seven times. Seven times. When we get to chapter 6 in in the book of Revelation, we're going to discover a seven-year period of a furnace known as the Tribulation where the heat is the wrath of God. But this furnace was heated up in Babylon seven times. The three Hebrew children, boys, men actually were thrown into the fire. The door was closed. Those who threw them in were themselves burned alive. That's how hot it was. They're in there. Nebuchadnezzar waits for a few minutes. And then he goes over to the door and peers in. In his own words, look. Daniel 325. I see more four men loosed, four, walking in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of God's. Yeah? Of course it is. It's Jesus. I am fully convinced Jesus is walking around in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't wait to hear what they were talking about. Hey, you know Seattle won the last three games, and they're looking good to go against Minnesota on Monday night. I'm very excited about it. Now, why, did they talk about it? They're in the fire. Why is Jesus in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because Jesus shows up where faith is hot, where faith is passionate. These three said, we will not bow to you, even if God doesn't rescue us, and we think he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your idol. God loves that. Jesus shows up in the midst of that and joins them in the furnace. Note that when you are in the furnace, He's there. He knows how to join you in the fire. But you know what? I'm not talking about here faith in Jesus. I'm talking about the faith of Jesus. His faith. See, He says... I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Where does it come from? Jesus. This is His gold. And it's not a fool's gold. This is pure gold. A gold that has been refined in the fire. It is the faith of Jesus. Do you ever stop and think about Jesus having faith in God? Is that a weird concept? The faith of Christ. I have faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ truth is nobody ever in all history had a deeper more true more rich faith in Jesus when he walked in flesh I'm talking about trust nobody has ever trusted God the way Jesus did in the person of the son trusting the father absolute perfect beautiful faith and his faith was fired oh not in the furnaces of Babylon but at the furnace of Calvary when He went to the cross, trusting, believing. God was going to take Him through it. Believing He would come out the other side. What was on display at the cross was literally the faith of Jesus, pure as gold. Jesus said there in the garden, Father, if You're willing, remove this cup from Me, yet not My will, but Yours be done. That's faith. That's a faith in the fire. In fact, all the way from the Galilee to Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus put His faith through the fire, walked through the flames of antagonism and hatred and bitterness all the way to the cross. And on the cross we see Jesus, Luke 23.46, crying out with a loud voice, doing what He has already once done on the cross. Now He's doing it a second time. He's teaching. I, I have no idea how He has the presence of mind to do this. But on the cross... Do you remember what he said? He said, uh, Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People say, see, he was forsaken by God. No, he was teaching. He was saying, as any good rabbi would, this is what's happening. Go look at Psalm 22. Read the psalm. It is the psalm that describes crucifixion in detail. And Jesus calls that out. Even that we here 2,000 years later would go to the psalm and say, whoa, this is about the crucifixion. But He also says, for the second time, Luke 23, 46, quoting Psalm 31, verse 5, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. That's a psalm. He speaks it out. Luke says, having said this, he breathed his last, and by the way, you know, you Bible students, with his last breath, John 19, verse 30, tells us he spoke a final word, to die, it is finished, and he died. Having a faith as pure as gold through the furnace. And he says, I advise you to buy that kind of faith, to pick that up. My friends, there is only one place to get this kind of pure, refined gold, and that is by buying into not just faith in Jesus, but the faith of Jesus. Buying into His kind of faith. That is a tested faith. A tried faith. A true faith. How do we do that? James says, James 1, verse 2, "...consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials." Life hurting? Things difficult? Relationships messy? Praise God. Oh, I'm not saying be sadomasochistic and thank God for just bad stuff. But thank Him for giving you the faith in the midst of it. Thank Him for joining you in it thank Him, invite Him to walk with you knowing, James says, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, I'll ask you, when was the last time you prayed for persecution? When was the last time you asked for affliction or sought after suffering or hoped for hardship? Boy, honey, I hope 2019 is far worse than 2018. Yes. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's what Paul did. He actually sought for that. He looked for opportunities to be persecuted because Paul, the Apostle, knew that the very persecution of his faith would strengthen his faith. He says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to walk with Him in the furnace. I want to be Rakshak or Benny. I want to be there in the flames. Being, Paul says, conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to or come to the resurrection of the dead. And you know, I'm absolutely convinced of this. When we studied through Acts, there's a certain point where you see Paul set his sights on Jerusalem. And everyone around him is saying, not a good idea, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, you know what's going to happen. They're going to arrest you there and they'll probably put you down, man. He had a prophet named Agabus come and wrap cords around him, wrap his belt around Paul and say, see, this is what the Lord is saying will happen. You go there, you're going to be arrested. He had friends, the elders of Ephesus, weeping, saying, Paul, don't go. He had others saying, Paul, it's going to be a mess. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul intended to go right back to Jerusalem. Why? To be conformed to his death. And I think you can make a very strong case in the Bible for the Apostle Paul wanting to die like Jesus did, crucified right outside of Jerusalem. Why would he want that? Because his affinity for, his love of, his desire, his passion for Jesus was so hot that for Paul, the best way to go out of this world is exactly the way Jesus did. Now you know God had other plans. He gets arrested, spends two years in prison writing some of the most beautiful, profound faith in suffering letters. And then after that, he's released for a time before he's finally arrested and executed in Rome. Either way, he died for Jesus. Jesus. Either way, that ultimately was Paul's desire. Let me ask you, is your faith lukewarm? Are your convictions cooling off? If you got the guts for it, pray for persecution. Ask the Lord that it might not be so easy for you. And He will fire up your faith. We come into this very comfortable auditorium wooden walls nice to look at comfortable chairs and we sing songs like purify my heart let me be as gold and purest silver purify my heart then we get to the chorus refiner's fire my heart's one desire is to be holy and I wonder if any of us ever hear the spirit of God say really I choose to be holy set apart for you my master are you sure ready to do your will are you what a crazy thing to sing what an insane thing to pray unless you truly do want a faith that is pure as gold. Second Timothy three twelve, Paul said indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now you can live in Christ Jesus. Not godly, you can just be a Christian. You can sit there on the fringe of any church. You can be kind of loosely tied to Christian people and you can fool yourself, as the Laodicean mentality does, into thinking that you're fine, thinking you have need of nothing, or, or you can desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, but if you do, you will be persecuted. What do I do when I am? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. This, this hurts. This situation is hot and uncomfortable and painful. Praise your name. Thank you, because I know you're growing my faith. I know you're purifying this into pure gold. Because in the furnace, our faith is made into pure gold. And Jesus says, I advise you, buy this from me. The second thing he says, And I advise you to buy from me white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed but we have been ashamed for 6000 years for 6000 years this world has been living in shame prior to that genesis 225 the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed good times in the garden Good times with Adam and Eve naked, but they weren't ashamed it was all good. And then Genesis 3:6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree, under the knowledge of good and evil, was desirable to make wise. so she took from its fruit and she ate, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So, what did they do? Well, they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Have you ever seen fig leaves? If you have, you know these things are rough and scratching and they can chafe. I mean, aloe vera leaves would have been a much more soothing option. Fig leaves. It's interesting to me because what we've watched, if you span history, we can see that humankind has gone from being irritated by our shame to ignoring our shame to ultimately incorporating it into the latest fashion. Laodicea of present day wears shame with pride. They even use the word pride. Wearing shame with pride. It's shocking to recognize that we actually have arrived at that place. Just like the trendy black wool of Laodicea. And what does Jesus say? Buy from me white garments. White garments. What do the white garments represent? Hey, if gold depicts faith as it does in the Scriptures, purified, refined, fired gold, if that depicts faith, what about white garments? They illustrate righteousness. Note that. Righteousness. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You see, righteousness is the requirement for salvation. You cannot be saved. You cannot come into the presence of God unless you are fully, 100%, absolutely, completely made righteous. So righteousness is the white garment that he's talking about. He goes on and says, He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. By the way, interesting, for all the white garments... In the scriptures, the, the white throne we'll see in Revelation 20. Even Jesus' head and his hair being white, like white wool, like snow. Revelation 1.14. The latest attack on intelligent faith is that white, as used in the Bible, is racist. Now, you know what? I chuckled when I saw that, and then I started to think about that. And in a culture, which as in Canada, it's even uh, several steps ahead of this right now, but it's coming to America where the Bible is starting to be denied because it is a racist document. According to those who think they have everything. It's a racist document. Because they talk about white clothing and white is the standard. Listen, there is nowhere and anywhere in the, all the scriptures where Jesus says white has to do with skin color. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. He would not list himself as Caucasian on any form. He would have had deep brown skin, probably brown eyes, probably a hooked nose. He wasn't white. So you might want to put away some of those DVDs and pictures that you have hanging around the house with Jesus who might as well be on a surfboard as be in the Galilee. <laughs> Blue eyes, blonde hair. No, white is just simply the picture of something that is spotless. To be white. By the way, VeggieTales is also racist, so it's all good. White for Jesus is a representation. White in the Bible is a representation of the righteousness of God. It's about righteousness. He advises Laodicea to buy white garments. He offers it twice to the church, the sleeping, the dead church of Sardis. You'll walk with me in white. Revelation 3, verses 4 and 5. The elders in Revelation 4 are dressed interestingly in white. The martyrs of the tribulation that we'll read about in Revelation 6, 11 and 7, verses 9, 13, and 14. In all of those references, they are given white robes to wear. The bride, Revelation 19, verse 8, wears white. And so do the saints who return with Jesus in Revelation 19, verse 14. In fact, let's go there. Go to Revelation 19, just for a moment. Revelation 19. watch this and dial in closely for this it's so important to grasp something very subtle here but it matters in Revelation 19 verse 8 we'll start in verse 7 it says let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if you're reading a King James translation, it reads like this. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Subtle difference. King James just translates it righteousness. The New American Standard Bible translates it righteous acts. Well, if you look at the Greek, it's only one word. It's just one word there. It's not two. It's not righteous acts. It's one word. It is the word for righteousness. But the way it's written is what's important. It's written dikaiomata. Dikaiomata. Which is righteousness in the plural form. So literally what Jesus says is, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, white and clean, or clean and white, for the fine linen is the dikaiomata, literally the righteousnesses of the saints. The righteousnesses. That's different than the righteous acts, and it's different than simply the righteousness. It is the righteousnesses. Why does that matter? Well, he's not talking about a whole bunch of saints running around with all kinds of righteousnesses. You know, he's righteous and she's righteous and he's... No, 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 no. There are two kinds of righteousness in the Bible, just two. Two righteousnesses, if you will. There is righteousness by justification, which is the righteousness that is credited to us. That is by faith in Jesus. It's not something you can do. It's not something you can earn. It is the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He died and through faith in Him, I become justified. Righteous by justification, credited just by simply trusting Him. That's one kind of righteousness. The other kind of righteousness in the Bible is sanctification. Righteousness by sanctification, which is a righteousness that is conveyed to those who also by faith want to live righteously. Do you see the subtle difference? One is just given by faith in Jesus, but the other one, I can walk in I can actually be involved in that. I can do that. I can't do the justification thing. That has to be 100% given. But the sanctification, I have a role. I have a part in this. I get to be involved in the righteousness that He already made me because I'm justified, but now as I'm being sanctified, I get to play a role. And the white garments in Revelation 19, verse 8, are both. That's why He says the righteousnesses of the saints i have been made righteous by his blood and i can live righteous by his spirit now that's exciting to me maybe maybe it's not to you it probably should be if it's not i can choose not to sin i can choose to do the right thing i can choose given two alternatives to follow jesus rather than engage in the world i have that opportunity now because I've been justified, I can be sanctified, and ultimately I'm going to be glorified. and That's going to be awesome. Two righteousnesses. But listen, get this. In this uptight self-righteous, new sincerity of the meta-modern world, that's just a black garment. And you don't wear black to a wedding. Not if you're a bride. You wear white. Justified. Sanctified. White garments, my friends, are all the stitch in heaven. They're what it's all about. White garments. That's what they're wearing. Righteousness is fine linen, white and clean. And what Jesus did, and we can do now in and through Him by faith as we walk as servants of His, is righteousness. And I can choose that. And Jesus says, yeah, buy that. Buy from me a gold refined in fire, your faith. And buy from me the white garments. Live righteously. Make that choice. And finally, He says, I advise you to buy from me eye salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. If gold is faith, if white garments reflect righteousness, eye salve here, epitomizes, get this, listen spiritual insight spiritual insight spiritual insight Saul was on the road to Damascus cruising along cold hearted steely eyed missile man as I said midweek, he's on his way to do his dastardly deeds against the church, he hated the church Some among the Jewish population might say, he's got a fiery hatred for those 'er ne'er-do-wells, those church Christian people. I would say, no, he was stone cold in his mission to kill. And he's on his way, he's heading across that road, and suddenly, you know the story, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. Later he would say he actually saw Jesus, as Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And there on the ground, having seen Jesus, Paul was blind. See, before he didn't realize he had been blind. Now, he knew he was blind. He went literally blind on the road to Damascus, and his men had to pick him up and carry him, walk him on the rest of the way into Damascus, brought him into the house, and for three days and nights, he just sat there in the house. Interesting. Three days and nights, he was blind. And he in the house, he's there, and he can't see, and he's not eating, and he's not drinking, and he's not sleeping. All he's doing is just... I mean, I can imagine going over and over in his mind, talking to God. How did I get this wrong? How? Wh- what am I missing? What's going on here? I don't understand how I could be so far off. I thought I was your man. And all this going on, and then God calls little Ananias there in Damascus and says, Go. Go to Paul. Go to Saul. Acts 9 verse 17, after laying his hands on him, he said, and I love this, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled, listen, be filled, don't miss this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spiritual insight. Something that Paul himself lacked until the Spirit came upon him, verse 18 of Acts chapter 9, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Why is this scaly story in Scripture? My friends, Saul lacked insight even after he encountered Christ. Came face to face with Jesus and for three days, trying to work it out. Until Ananias laid hands on Him and the spiritual insight came into Him. And I tell you that to say, we're talking to the church here. Jesus is talking to the church. And no matter how educated or astute or intellectual or brilliant a person is or thinks they are, until they are filled with the Spirit of the living God, they cannot fully understand Jesus. You can sit in church all your life and hear sermon after sermon And you can try to work it all out in your soul man or soul woman. But until you have the Spirit of the living God literally indwelling you, anointing you, notice Jesus uses the word anoint for your eyes, so that you may see until you're anointed by the Spirit of God, you will not have spiritual insight. This is just biblical truth. Now that may offend some. Well, I've studied these things out and I know what I know. Yeah, and you don't know enough. Because even a child anointed by the Spirit of God will see what you can't see. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to to him. And Paul was a natural man. A Hebrew among Hebrews. A leader in the Jewish circles. leader in the synagogue. A Pharisee. Man, Paul was, was the it guy... And he didn't understand. Vastly intelligent. He didn't know. natural man only sees the things of the Spirit of God as foolishness. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If you're having trouble seeing past your own intellect, what I would call eye trouble, (laughs) the question to ask this morning is, have I been anointed by His Spirit so that I can see? And can I use you as an example again, Les? I'm just messing with you. I, it just cracks me up how people will say, Les knows. I see him coming in the hall of the church and I duck out of the way because he knows. He sees. How do we know that he knows that he sees? Well, because he prayed for me two Sundays ago. I knew exactly what was going on. I'm naked and laid bare before Les. <laughs> and want are the truth, I'll let you in on a secret. Les doesn't know squat. Just ask Donna. <laughs> but you know what? The Spirit of the living God has anointed my brother to see, to have spiritual insight. No one comes up and says, Rick sees, but whatever. Whatever. <laughs> spiritual insight to see what God sees to understand what God is trying to get across to to have passion Hmm. to not just be a social Christian a lukewarm Laodicean Jesus said in John 5.44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the only God my glory here means nothing My accomplishments, nothing, eternally. But to seek His glory? To be anointed by His Spirit? Oh, Daniel 12.3 says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And there's the the test there. There's the key. If you're one who is passionate first and foremost about Jesus, but then about leading people into salvation... It's because you've been anointed. You have spiritual insight to see what matters. And if you lack that, all you gotta do is ask. Jesus said in Luke 11, is it? How much more will the Father give His Holy Spirit to those who ask? Spiritual insight. And Jesus says, I advise you to buy it from me. A golden faith refined by fire, white garments of righteousness to cover all shame, all nakedness, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You'll see, you'll understand these things. Jesus is, well, he's a tenacious door-to-door salesman. He is, I know because in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So he's there knocking. He's tenacious because it doesn't leave you alone. I gave my life to you last year, Lord. Hey, you there? Hey, open up. Leave me alone. I got something I want you to buy. Look, I'm busy here. I got something for you. You can buy it today. Maybe part of the problem is I know I don't have any money to buy what he's offering. I got nothing. How am I supposed to buy this stuff? Man, I'm like looking at the 12 days of Christmas gift list and going $39,093.94. That's stupid. How could I afford that? Well, the song says you afford it if you want to buy something for your true love. Jesus is the true love. And all these things are prepaid. That's the weirdest thing about this. He's the salesman knocking at the door of your heart, and you're saying, I don't have a dime, and he's like, that's fine, I've already bought it all. Then why does he say, buy from me? How do you know that he bought it all? Well, Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, eat. I love the irony. You got nothing? Come buy Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It's already prepaid. All right then, so why does he say buy? Please get this. Please understand this. These gifts are different than all the other gifts of all the other letters. In fact, even at the end of this letter, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my Father's throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Slide right on up. You can be as close to me as possible, he says. And I mean, it's going to give that to you. And every other letter is filled with things that Jesus says, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to provide this for you. Just overcome. And I've got this for you. But to Laodicea, he says... I advise you to buy these things. Why does he say buy? Because in the case of gold faith, white garment righteousness, an ISAB that gives you spiritual insight, you have got to really want them. Laodicea, listen. You have got to want these things. You've got to want them bad enough to want to buy them. I have no money, but I would buy these if I could. Like my son Hayden, the other day, bought one of his Christmas presents ahead of time. He didn't know I was going to get it for him. I had it on the list. Get this for him. This would be great. He'll love this. Hey, Dad, guess what I bought today? And I'm like, (laughs) What are you doing? To. knucklehead. He just wanted it so bad that he had to buy it. You ever been there? You see something? You know that someone might get it for you but oh, I don't care. I want it. So you buy it. It's the attitude of the heart. Jesus says to lukewarm, lethargic Laodicea, I want you to want this so bad you say, I will buy it. And you stand there with nothing going, I want to buy this. And Jesus says, right on. Here you go. Prepaid. Because He's stirring up passion. He is stirring up faith. And when we come to Him with that attitude, I will buy whatever you've got, Lord. With my nothing, He will turn up the heat and your passion will ignite. Let's stand up together. Do you realize, I think I may have said this earlier, but that in ten weeks we have covered 2,000 years of the church. We have read letters from Jesus to historical churches throughout this time, to historical churches in 95, and to iterations of the church across these 2,000 years. We see this plainly, clearly, it's pretty stunning. And he's written all of these letters to the church in the church age. And and here we are this morning on the verge of a door standing open in heaven. And that's not just a ploy to get people to come out for Revelation chapter 4. But my friends, we are at Laodicea. We are at the end of the church age. These are the last days in which we live. I am fully convinced of this. So, the question is, what are we going to do? What if Jesus were to come this week? I told you, Wednesday night, one way or another, we're going to heaven. What if we did? Are you ready? Do you have a a faith? Like gold? Are your garments white? We love to sing the song, We'll be a bride ready for you. Are we Do we see things the way He wants us to see them? Or are we veiled in our understanding in this world? Do you buy any of this? I hope you do. And I hope we as a fellowship, as much as individuals, will be on fire for Jesus in these last days. Lord, that's my prayer. That You ignite passion in us. Not a silly passion that burns itself out like a log on the fire, but a passion that is rooted in the Son of David. A passion that is warm as we recognize the Lion of Judah. A passion for the One who became the Lamb that was slain. Stir up, Lord, by Your Spirit. This is the part of the morning where we get to a place that I can't do a single thing but ask. And I ask You, Spirit of the Living God, to anoint this fellowship fresh and new in a way we have not experienced and not for our experience, but that we might be a passionate people in a very bland, tepid world. That we might shine like stars in the expanse that we would choose to live righteously so that You would, through that righteousness, save people. And at the same time, Lord, sanctify the justified. Lord, we need You. We desperately need You. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that You will move among us, flood our hearts with truth and with the reality of all these things as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I say as we pray, that's not a past tense as we have finished praying, that's as we pray. And we're going to pray right now. And you can come forward or go to one of the back tables and pray. If you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm telling you, time is short. I'm telling you that because I love you with the love of the Lord. I'm telling you that because He loves you and wants you to be saved and the time is short. And He says, come to Me and buy for free. So I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't become a Christian, if you're not a follower, do it today. Give your life to Him. It is absolutely simple. Pray. Trust Him. And start your walk. If you haven't been baptized, the days are short. We'll baptize you this morning. If you feel like you're lacking the anointing of the Holy Spirit, because you're lukewarm and dry, come forward. We'll anoint you. We'll pray over you. And not by our power, but by His power and His promises, you'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you do, don't stay lukewarm. You may even just need to stand there and be in the presence of God and pray and ask Him to flood your spirit with power and with fire and with opportunity to be passionate for Him. Whatever you need to do, just do it this morning. As we sing this song together, come, please come.